0: This is The East TraumaCast, with your moderators, Ferox Madbag, University of Florida, Jacksonville. Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah.
1: Carrie Valdez from Covenant Hospital in Saginaw, Michigan.
0: And Matt Martin from
1: Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Advancing science, fostering
0: relationships, and building careers. Welcome to another edition of the TraumaCast. I'm your moderator today, Dave Morris, and joining me uh, as co-moderator is Dr. Kerry Valdez. Carrie, thanks for joining us.
1: Hi, happy to be here.
0: We are very fortunate today. Uh, We're going to be addressing the topic of uh, responsible opioid prescribing in trauma patients, which I know uh, I struggle with, and I'm sure most of our listeners uh, have had issues in the past. Uh, joining us, we have two illustrious guests, and I will allow them to introduce themselves. Uh, first, uh, uh, Andrew Bernard, you want to go ahead and introduce yourself, Andrew?
2: Hi, I'm Andrew Bernard. I'm a professor of surgery at the University of Kentucky, and uh, it's my privilege to also serve as the East president.
0: And uh, I should mention that uh, those of you who were at the Maddox meeting in Las Vegas this year, I think, heard uh, Andrew speak about the same thing. I wasn't there, or wasn't able to hear. It, but is that that that's correct, Andrew? You were able to give a talk that's about right. this topic there. I definitely saw people tweet about it, so so I'm sure it made a great impression. Um, also joining us is uh Douglas Euler. Uh Doug, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself as well?
3: Yeah, thanks. Um uh, yeah, happy to be here. Uh so yeah, my name's Doug Euler and I'm a a pharmacist by training uh in in, in the trauma area and uh, also in Lexington, and Kentucky, and I now run our office of opioid safety for
0: uh, UK Healthcare. Fantastic. So obviously we brought some big guns to bear on the topic today. Um well, let's let's go ahead and start right off um let me let me start with my first question being uh, the following. I, I it seems that um perhaps trauma patients in particularly represent slightly different patient population than maybe the average uh, you know elective surgical service or uh even inpatient medicine service in that I would argue and I guess I don't really have data to back this up but it's it seems like the uh, rate of opioid and other substance use in the trauma population may be slightly higher than the general population. And in particular, a lot of patients that we end up treating may even be in the act of acquiring or using said substances when they are injured. And that kind of puts us into a a, a slightly difficult situation, I think, in many cases. So uh, maybe, Doug, if you wouldn't mind just talking about that concept.
3: Sure, yeah, and I would agree. I think in the trauma population, you kind of have, and and there's not great population-level data, um, but, but I think there's a lot of... Uh, kind of a common understanding that this is a little more high risk population um when when you look at either existing or potential for uh, a a substance use disorder or an opioid use disorder um so so that certainly kind of muddies uh, muddies everything altogether if you add into the fact that there's not um you know there's not that kind of pre uh pre injury counseling or something that you may get with uh, with an elective case where they can kind of mentally prepare for. This is an elective surgery that I'm going to go into and, and you can have that conversation with a patient beforehand and, and this is going to hurt after and, and this is how long it should last and everything else. You, uh, a lot of times in, in this area, you have a person who, uh, who is otherwise healthy, um, from, from, from an injury perspective, at least otherwise healthy up until, uh, you know, just, just before their, their injury. So that, that muddies the water as well and there's, there's kind of a psychological component to that, that that even if they don't have an underlying substance use disorder when, when, uh, when they present, they may be potentially because of that that trauma and, and the psychological piece of it at higher risk for, for developing a, a substance use disorder uh, upon some kind of exposure. Um, now, for the patients that that are actively using or abusing various substances, uh, that, that also really complicates this uh, in that, there's there's a mixture of how do you how you manage the acute pain piece of this um, at the same time of of kind of distinguishing that from or co-managing uh, some sort of of withdrawal symptoms uh, or withdrawal scenario that that you may see whether it's from from opioids or from from amphetamines or alcohol or other sedatives um, so it certainly complicates everything uh, and and kind of adds some some uh, unique characteristics uh, around this. Now, one other piece of this that kind of makes it uh, a, a little bit simpler um, than the chronic scenario, the chronic pain scenario, is that it is oftentimes acute uh, and in in some degree self-limiting, uh, and you may have that population that, that doesn't have, you know, quite as many comorbidities and that they may be younger or um, they don't have those other disease states, uh, that may put them at at a higher risk for for overdose or or something like that. So you may not be managing this on top of of chronic pain like you would see in in some other areas, uh, but the substance use disorder piece certainly complicates it.
0: And, and one of the things that it seems like um you know, as more attention is being paid to the opioid crisis and the opioid epidemic, it seems like oftentimes you get these little patient vignettes or or clinical scenarios of like you know I was going along living my life and I was well employed and blah blah blah. And then I was injured, or I had surgery, or something, and then it started this domino effect. And um, I'm just wondering if that, if anybody, has that actually been studied? It, it seems like so many times the the inciting event in an addiction was either a surgical procedure, or it seems like a lot of the ones that I have read have been injuries. Is that? Is yeah, that, is a way that it, absolutely. Yeah.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, you know, if you kind of look at this, it's a, it's a disease of exposure, um, really. And when you look at uh, the United States as a country, I mean, we're 5% of the population of the world and we use 99% of the hydrocodone and, and somewhere around 75 or 80% of all the opioids uh, in the world are used here by 5% of the population of the United States. So, uh, so there's certainly uh, a level of, of exposure to prescription opioids uh, that subsequently leads to, uh, to to an opioid use disorder and 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 actually it's about 75% of people who have uh an opioid use disorder so whether that's they're addicted to prescription uh drugs or they're addicted to uh illicit heroin or or, or drugs that aren't prescribed to them uh 75% of them started with prescription opioids uh and the vast majority of those uh were written for them um by by a provider so uh, that's certainly a, a a big piece of this. Uh, another thing is um you know dental procedures and those kind of things and in that is in a younger population. So I think there's a, a bit of a crossover with, with trauma there as well. If you take a, a high risk person and in, in someone a high risk person from an opioid use disorder standpoint, um in someone that already has a substance use disorder problem, or someone that's younger, being you know, under twenty five or so, um exposing them to uh to, to drugs that that modulate dopamine reward pathways um, in in a not fully developed brain um certainly increases their risk for uh for developing a, a, an addiction later on. So yeah, that's that's a huge piece uh and there's there's actually a good amount of data. You hear the anecdotal stories a lot, um, but there there is a good amount of data uh behind the the concept of my first exposure um was was uh, from a
2: prescription. Doug, there was a a slide that I used at Dr. Maddox's meeting that showed the life cycle of 100 prescriptions to opiate-naive individuals. That's one of the most powerful slides that, that I have. And Of 100 people, for example, 100 people on your trauma service with, say, a fracture, not using opioids at that time, of those 100... One is going to end up a heroin user. One is going to engage in drug diversion actively as a business, and one is going to be dead. So a 1% mortality rate in our opiate prescribing, if you want to think about it like that. We talk a lot about preventable death. Here's an opportunity to affect preventable death in our trauma practice. It has nothing to do with the trauma. It has to do with our prescribing practice. I think that's a really powerful number. It's good. Yeah,
3: absolutely, and there's, there's there's newer data coming out from uh, from the CDC about this that looks at again getting back to that exposure. Uh, even a one day prescription in an opioid naive patient, um, they have a six percent chance of still being on, uh, still being on opioids at a year. And you take that out to a, a two week prescription, and it, and it bumps up to almost a twenty percent chance uh, of still being on opioids at a year. And um, so it's certainly there's a there's there's a correlation and, and an impact uh, or or a possibility to impact uh long-term use and and subsequent mortality definitely.
0: Are there common themes in the patients that do go on to develop addiction? In other words, it, are are all 100 people exactly the same or are there certain risk factors that we can identify up front that we could maybe you know target more additional counseling or maybe Different prescribing practices for those. Is, is, that been, is there any way to suss out these people beforehand or is it is it always are we always going to be forced to look backwards at this?
3: A little bit of both. Uh, you know, I think there are certainly specific risk factors. So if you already have an underlying substance use disorder, um or you know including something like alcohol, um you're you're at much higher risk. Uh if you're younger, you're at higher risk. Uh there's a little bit of evidence that potentially males may be higher risk um uh, but then there's other studies that say you know possibly possibly females um but certainly comorbid psychiatric diseases, so if you have a history of depression bipolar disease uh or 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 something something like that that's gonna put you at higher risk for going on to develop uh substance use disorder as well but you that doesn't that doesn't weed out everyone um so you know one of the things that you see and, and part of why uh the uh, the opioid crisis is such a problem is that it there's not a socioeconomic component to this and i mean there is to some degree but as as far as predicting who is going to develop a substance use disorder uh it you know it doesn't know socioeconomic bounds it doesn't know race bounds or or, or ethnic background bounds or, or anything like that um, and and that's part of why it's it's such a big problem so you can identify some risk factors uh, but but there are a number of people that wouldn't Check off those traditional boxes uh, that uh, that are that may end up with some kind of substance use disorder,
1: one thing I found really interesting. I like that phrase you use that this is a disease of exposure, and I was hoping to get uh, both of your um, experience how do you manage it at your hospital at our hospital, if you have a trauma patient, if I didn't operate on the patient, they don't follow up with me. If somebody else operated on them, they'll follow up with that surgeon, be it orthopedics. ENT, neurosurgery, and then they also follow up with their primary care physician. So when they leave my trauma service, often I'm sending them home with a prescription or my nurse practitioner with a prescription for narcotics. They will follow up with, let's say, orthopedic surgery. They get a refill. They follow up with their primary care physician. They also get a refill. So we each feel as we've only given one prescription. And then I get the letter a month later saying, heads up, just want to let you know this patient fulfilled three different prescriptions from three different providers. And I don't know if that patient needed all three. If there was an abuse of the system, if each provider felt they needed it, and and I was wondering how you all kind of manage that because, like we suggested, this is in retrospect. I can look back and say, whoa, that guy for a femur fracture ended up getting 120 Norco's in three weeks. How do you all manage this?
3: It's tough, uh, and 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 I'm sure Andrew can speak to this some as well. But yeah, it's it's hard. There's there's a couple key concepts though. One I think is. Is working to set those expectations up front. So not just the you know clear expectations of this is uh, you know this is what I'll write for and this is how long I'll you know I'll manage your opioid prescribing or something like that. Uh, that's part of it, but also the expectations of this is uh, you know this is what these drugs do. This is you know how you're going to heal. This is how long the the pain from an acute injury um, should last. And and otherwise um, we need to we need to do other kind of investigatory. Uh, pieces. Now what that doesn't do is that doesn't, uh, necessarily keep them from going to another, uh, another prescriber or, or filling at other pharmacies or, or something like that. So there's a communication piece, um, there as well, uh, and, and, uh, hopefully Andrew can, can speak a little bit to, to that kind of communication piece, uh, with colleagues, but I think one of the biggest things is setting those expectations up front. Um, there's an, another thing is, uh, legal or changes in the legislature um, that, so, for example, here in Kentucky, there's, you know, a three-day limit on prescribing for acute pain with, um, you know, seven or eight different uh, exceptions, major trauma being one of them, but it's still only a two-week limit. So when all those other kind of things fail, it, the provider can kind of lean back on, this is this is as much as I can do in, in, uh, in the eyes of the law, um, if you will. So there's there's that piece as well to kind of help with the conversation, but I think a lot of it is setting those expectations up front.
2: I think the patients do tend to shop. They'll shop between general surgery and orthopedic surgery. We do a better job today than we have, Carrie, with coordinating between the two clinics and the clinic coordinator in one clinic being firm with the patient and saying, you need to speak with the other clinic because they're your primary follow-up and they they managed your primary surgical problem. So we're better at that than we used to be. We're more mindful. I think the Prescription Drug Monitoring Program helps, too, because we can get a quick printout of all the prescriptions that have been issued, and we don't have to hear about it later, you know, in in letter form like you described. So I think the PDMP is helpful. Doug, there's data on the PDMP and how it has affected prescribing as well. Is that right?
3: Yeah, that's that's correct. There's uh there was a really nice paper, I think it was in uh JAMA maybe a couple years ago, um talking about they used Florida uh as uh as their case study. Um and essentially looked at uh, I think it was about a year before and a year after uh implementation of their uh prescription drug monitoring program down there. And what they saw was among the it was like top 1%, 3%, 5%, 10% uh among those uh groups and they compared against uh Against Georgia, and they found um, significant reductions in essentially doctor shopping. Uh, now, a lot of that may have been driven by the kind of uh, pill mills, if you will, uh, and and the subsequent crackdown on those has changed some. Um, but yeah, there's there's evidence that they help with um, with that from that study. There's other studies that have looked at do they help with overdose uh, or, or opioid overdoses and reduce that, and, and they probably do. So um, here in Kentucky, we have Casper as our prescription drug monitoring program, and it's it's fairly robust in what it has and, and we're one of a number of states that, that require a provider to, um to check what's on the PDMP before they, uh, before they write a prescription. Uh, and there are, there are specific pieces of, of those, uh, drug monitoring programs and specific components that they have that have been correlated with, uh, with more benefit than, than others. And, and some of those are the, the mandatory checking, others is, you know, what's all monitored on the, uh, by the program and and how often it refreshes and that sort of thing. But yeah, there is there is pretty substantial data on uh, prescription drug monitoring programs and it's a it's a pretty good tool um, as long as uh, as long as you can get pretty ready access to it and and some places have it integrated into their electronic medical records so it just pops right up. Um, so so you can get pretty fancy with how it works, but that's definitely a helpful piece as well.
0: So Doug, in, in follow up with that. Um... I want to talk a little bit about legal ramifications. You said that a, a prescriber is required to check the uh, drug monitoring system. Is is it is it built in so that a prescription cannot be written unless it's done, or is it some? Is that just the expectation? And failure to do so puts you at some legal liability.
3: Uh, it's it's the latter, yeah. So um, there's there's the expectation, and they essentially have the ability to um, go back and query, right? Because all of the all the controlled substances. So um, here in here in Kentucky, it's any controlled substance uh, except for you know Schedule One things like cocaine and marijuana stuff like. That. So any prescribed controlled substance, as soon as a patient fills that at the pharmacy, they send that data on to uh, onto the cabinet and it's put into our uh, drug monitoring program, uh, and it has the prescriber DEA and the pharmacy they fill out and everything like that. With, uh, with all the prescription information. So, so that's in there. What they also have is how often, uh, the, the provider or a delegate queries, um, the, uh, the system, um, for given, for a given patient during a given period of time and everything like that. So they can go through and essentially match those up, um, and, and say, Dr. X has written, you know, an incredible amount of, of prescriptions, but there's, there's minimal evidence that, um, that he or she is uh, checking the the PDMP data, uh, but at least here in Kentucky, there's there's nothing built in that says you have to have this done before you can write a script. Uh, what that ultimately requires is something uh, something like electronic prescribing for controlled substances. So we're everything essentially getting rid of the the paper scripts um, and putting everything through a system. There's a lot of security measures and and costs associated with that, but I think there's some. Um some movement uh I think senator uh mullen from from oklahoma has has proposed a decent amount of of movement around electronic prescribing, so that was that's something that would you know it's more secure for one, but it would potentially pave the way to to really mandate uh at least pulling the query um for uh for for p d m p data before a prescription's written
0: It's interesting you mentioned that because uh, I know that in many places it it has been. And, and maybe still is, the fact that, you know, to get an opioid prescription, you actually have to print it out and sign it, and, and e-prescribing was specifically not allowed for opioids, and um, which always seemed a little counterintuitive to me. So I, I don't know how it is in, in Kentucky or, or in Michigan where, where you are, Andrew and Carrie, but uh, do you guys have similar restrictions on prescribing like that?
1: It's it's pretty impressive. We have to – we're electronic, and then I can only prescribe to patients who are admitted to the hospital. So I have to use my user name and password to get into the chart. And then once I prescribe the narcotic, I have a fingerprint scanner that will scan one of the three fingerprints that I have on file. And then a message gets sent to my cell phone, and I have to accept that, yes, this is me, and I've prescribed it. And then it will go through to the pharmacy. It will be a, a direct um, prescription that goes through.
2: Wow. Wow. And once That's they've been discharged,
1: if they've gone home and they either, you know, somebody forgot to write it or they took it and it made them vomit and they want something else, there just isn't a way for me to get them a prescription from home. Like if I get a call – we take home calls. If I get a call at night, I just – I can't help you with the option. Do so you need to go to the emergency room or wait until tomorrow and come over to the office
0: and do it? Well, and that raises the question. I've often – at least, you know, when I'm when I'm in one of those deep contemplative moods, I've often thought that perhaps <laughs> some of the barriers that we have created in a – a uh, worthy effort to try to protect prescribing. Um, I, I almost sometimes wonder if that leads to prescribing abuse practices. I, I'm more likely to give them 30 pills if I know that there's really no other convenient way for me to get them a refill if they need one. I'd like to hear uh, maybe, Andrew, your thoughts, and, and Doug as well. What, is, that a, is that a concept that is, that is out there and people are talking about it?
2: Doug is the expert on the evidence, so I'll let him comment on the evidence. But I... I have cranked down my prescribing dramatically. The way I have instructed all my staff, my residents, to prescribe now is electronically. It does print it out and you still have to sign it here, um, but we use templates, so agreed upon templates. There's a three-tablet one and there's a 15-tablet one for our outpatient surgery, as an example, for appendectomy and lap Um so we've made a conscious effort to tone those down. I see the inclination that you describe. Wow, it's such a hassle. I better just give them thirty rather than fifteen and they call because it's a bummer to write the second prescription. I'm interested in Doug's comments on that. Yeah, so there's
3: there's actually a couple different angles and 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 I'm in the process now of working with some of the, the folks at, at Kentucky in uh in the Department of Communications to try to get out of the community and, and look at this as well. So um the the few pieces I want to address though so one about does giving a longer duration change um the the refill request so it was a good paper uh again I think it was in JAMA surgery maybe uh towards the end of last year that was I think it was titled like defining the optimal um duration of of opioids for common procedures so it wasn't specific to trauma but um it was looking at a number of outpatient procedures and essentially what they found was that um, that if you increase the – or one of the things that they found in, in their study was that if you increase the, the duration of your prescription, it didn't change the number of refill requests that you got. So um, so if you wrote someone for 30 days, um, you know, they, they still were calling for refills on day 30. If you wrote them for seven days, they were calling for refills on day seven. Um, so I, I think it's, it's a, a common misconception um, but but there really isn't that evidence that giving someone a longer duration uh is is going to cut down on you know the refill requests uh, and stuff that you get. And in our experience, um, for example, when, when I talk with some of the um, the, the orthopedic traumatologists and, and discuss with them about you know, they've worked a lot to kind of crank down on their prescribing as well and they've actually seen just the opposite of you know, as those as their prescribing has decreased, those refill requests have decreased. Uh, but, but an interesting thing uh, is also looking at disposal. So if you take someone and you write them a 30-day uh, script and they only use five pills or they only take it for a week or something, now they have 100, 120 extra pills lying around. Uh, and, and in a number of rural communities, um, here we actually see people are, are legitimately scared to have those uh, in their house because people will break in and steal them. Um, they don't know how to dispose of them. Kids find them. And either take them to school or small children find them and, and take them. Um so there's there's that piece of it as well writing too many uh puts them unnecessarily into into the community um that they're a risk of diversion or or something like that. The the tricky part though is if you if you take it and say, well we're gonna crank down and say we're only gonna write three days. What we don't know is as that gets out of the community. And and patients know that it's going to be harder and harder. Um, that there's more and more legislation coming out saying that you know my doctor can't write this, or, or it's harder for me to get pain medicine. Then if they don't happen to use it, does that make them more likely to keep it around and not dispose of it properly because it's been so hard? It was so hard for them to get it the first time. Um, so it kind of goes both ways. Um, but but without hard evidence that says that 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 latter piece is true. Uh, it seems like the, uh, the risk benefit of, of writing those longer scripts, um, seems to be potentially more harmful than, uh, than the reward that you would get of, of not getting refill requests or, or patients having barriers to get, um, subsequent medications. I don't know that that's been clearly evaluated in the, uh, in the full electronic prescribing piece though, where they have to physically be there um for for that to happen um even to you know even to write something like a a C5 substance like uh or or something like tramadol that you know you you can't call in for example an oxycodone script but you can call in tramadol so in places where you can't do that that's something that that I don't think that data's out there now
2: I've had no callbacks I've been using three tablets for a few months now three tabs for LAPAPI, lap and all and, and I haven't had anybody call and ask for more. It's amazing. It's just a, it, it's just changing their frame of reference. You're going to get three tablets, and it's Tylenol and Motrin after that, and you'll be fine. And and they've been fine. They've been just fine.
0: Yeah, that's that's interesting. It, it, it is going to be a, a cultural mind mindset shift that is going to have to happen. One of the strategies that they've started doing at my hospital here that I'd like to hear your comments on too is um, they call it the two prescription process, where we're going to you know they they queried a bunch of our patients and looked and asked them you know how how many tablets did you use after this procedure after that procedure and then came up with sort of a bell curve uh for that for those numbers and the idea with some of these things that they've actually built into our EMR now is that you can go in and you know you can actually by procedure and they've broken it down into the opioid exposed and the non exposed and the idea is that you give them two prescriptions one is for now and one they can fill Later on, if they need it, and you and you write a date when it's okay to fill it and stuff like that. Um, again, I think it's partly because sometimes the barrier to calling in a refill or getting the patient a refill if they genuinely need it is is so high, and so this is kind of a workaround. So, what what are your thoughts about that type of a strategy, Doug?
3: I, I i think that's there's some potential there um you, you probably have to be careful and, and check state by state the um, the the legality of like post dating um, prescriptions, especially for controlled substances that's one of the big things that would come to my mind um, is as a potential. Uh, a potential drawback to that. So um so if people want to implement that in, in their area, I would just check and make sure that um that, that you're allowed to post date those scripts and, and that sort of a thing. Um yeah, I, I think that's that's one workaround. Another thing that's been um kind of tossed around at least is allowing partial fills uh of of these of various medications. So where you can't do a, a partial fill of a uh, of a the C2 substance like oxycodone, uh, at least in Kentucky. So if you get a script for 30 pills and you say, oh, I only want five, I'll come back if I need the other 25, you can get your five and then, and then the rest of that prescription is voided. So, uh, and, and there are reasons that that's, that that's in place, I think, and to, to, you know, help work against diversion. Um, but, but that's another possible workaround. So I, I think that's helpful. Uh, it, what would be interesting would be, um, looking at data regarding how often people go in and fill those second scripts, Um, that if only 5% of the people fill that subsequent second script is is the benefit there of doing it, whereas if 90% of them fill that second script, you need to evaluate, the uh, you know, what's in the first script um, as well. So, you know, you have to be – and then you have to be a little bit careful that, um, you know, that it's not two weeks later and something has acutely changed that you would want to see them, um, back in clinic or, or whatever, that they'll say, oh, this is hurting and it's actually a problem, but they just go and they fill their, you know, their second prescription uh, and, and you end up not seeing them and, and delaying there. So, you know, with, with those kind of caveats uh, I, and, and the legality piece, um, you know, as, as long as you know, uh, uh, an institution double checks that, uh, I, I think there, there is probably some
2: potential there, though.
1: Doug, I was wondering—you uh, tickled my brain earlier when you introduced yourself. Could you just tell us what is the Office of Opioid Safety? We don't have an office like that here.
3: Sure. So there's yeah, there's there's not a lot of institutions um, that that do, but essentially, and it's 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 pretty new at at Kentucky as well. What I do essentially in 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 this office is work a lot with a number of different uh, groups of providers. To examine how we're using opioids, how we, how we, and and opioids for acute pain management or chronic pain management, right? Opioids for pain management in general. So not so much in the realm of how do we improve access to buprenorphine treatment for an opioid use disorder, or how we, how do we improve care for babies with neonatal abstinence syndrome. Much more focused on uh, opioids for pain management. So um we We work with individual service lines um so we've worked a lot with trauma uh, with orthopedics with internal medicine, um some of the oncology services as well um, to kind of look at how they're prescribing uh, and is is this appropriate for your population? Is it not if it is you know how do we get word out that this is if not um, how do we improve so there's that piece there's also a number of um revisions that have been made to the pain standards for for institutions uh from the Joint Commission. And so we're kind of tasked with um with helping ensure that we're compliant with all those regulations uh, and, and standards, as well as uh working to try to champion non-pharmacologic pain management, uh, which I think is uh, another huge piece of this um, from whether it's aromatherapy to you know PT and, and acupuncture and those kind of things working to help uh bring in resources and and champion those also. Um so a lot of that with with data management and data aggregation and and getting feedback back to prescribers as well.
2: We're calling you from the eye of the storm, Carrie. <laughs> <laughs> we, we are in the we are in the vortex. Doug well, you
1: a joy- mentioned some sorry. I say hey, You've mentioned so much about doing like research, and and we need to look at these things. And it sounds almost like your office is set up, at least locally, to to be the the house, almost like a registrar of all this data, and to help kind of put that information forward. It's a great idea.
3: Yeah, that's that's some of the stuff that we're that uh, that we're looking at. So um, Kiprick, the injury prevention uh, center in Kentucky, um, they have uh, they work with. Uh, our our cabinet that has all of that Casper the prescription drug monitoring program data. They have a lot of injury data and, and everything else. Um, so we work uh, pretty closely with them. We do outreach with other institutions. Um, we're starting to try to do more outreach into the community, um, whether that's into high schools or or into various counties and rural areas um, to to identify what some of the some of the problems that that people face in in those areas and how those may be different from uh, from a little more urban places like Lexington or Louisville. Um, here in the state cuz certainly yeah and, and I mean it's it's bad everywhere uh the the opioid crisis but it's it's hit uh rural places particularly hard it's hit Appalachia particularly hard so yeah there's there's quite a bit of work to do
0: So let's uh if we could let's let's shift gears just a little bit here and I and I'm interested to hear from uh, Andrew and from Carrie um I for one I feel a little bit betrayed by the training that I got in medical school and uh residency Regarding opioid prescribing and safe prescribing practices, I remember distinctly sitting in the uh you know pain is the fifth vital sign lectures um and I remember hearing from people that you know the rates of addiction were really low and we're if anything we're too cautious in how we prescribe for pain and there's this epidemic of people suffering from pain across the country I'm just wondering if if you guys had similar uh similar Experiences in, in your training, and and then I guess the larger question for everyone to chime in on is: How did we get it so wrong? I mean, the data that you talked about earlier, Andrew. It, it just: How did we get it so wrong?
2: Gary, me
1: we go first? Wait, we're waiting to see who feels the most betrayed. Um, yeah, no, I think uh, I just finished residency three years, yes. yeah, three years ago. So I was kind of in the middle of it, the very beginning no matter what, no matter what your surgery was, no matter what your injury was, you were going to get 30 Percocet, period. Every single person got 30 cassette. Whether they needed four, or they needed 50, you all got 30. And that's just what we did. And I think we really only had an hour per year of like a lecture during grand rounds or during our didactic day that would go over opioids. And in the beginning that was kind of the theme was it was the fifth vital sign, and all the things that you just had mentioned, David. And then it really shifted right in the middle of training as to we've got to dial it back, and that's when uh, all the kind of journalistic uh, hysteria almost about the opioid crisis kind of started. And so the end of my training really went in the other direction. And you're right, there's been this pendulum, and I don't really feel uncomfortable with knowing exactly what I'm supposed to do currently, even.
2: I am guilty. I'm guilty. I know exactly what you're describing, David. I remember standing before an entire auditorium full of our nurses talking about our our patient experience scores. At that time, we called them satisfaction scores. Now we call them patient experience. And telling them that pain control was part of how we're measured, which is changing for this reason. But I told them when the patient complains of pain, don't overthink it. Just give them another pain pill. And I am confident that I contributed to the problem by that behavior. I, I just, I was a young faculty member. That was the way I was trained. You know, don't worry about it. they are not going to get addicted as long as they have real pain. And, and that's the way I behaved. And it was so wrong. And we have come so far, but I've come that far in my prescribing by being taught that there's a better way. And, and that's one of the roles of this podcast is that we're kind of getting the message out. There is a better way and um, I'm interested in Doug's comments about how we got here because the history is very interesting about how we ended up being so complacent about them.
3: Yeah, it's – I mean even even my training, which – yeah, I graduated from pharmacy school uh, almost a decade ago, but, but my training in, as a pharmacist was – you can't get addicted to uh, to opioids if you're using them for legitimate pain and you know pain is the fifth vital sign and and everything else so um so yeah i mean it it's it was across healthcare uh and there's yeah there's a, there's a lot of really uh interesting pieces uh as far as how uh how how we got here i think one component or one thing that i would i would refer people to if they really want a, a good story of this uh is a book called Dreamland uh by San Quinones it's it's a really a uh, really great story it, it focuses a lot on heroin but but it has a really nice piece discussing uh the role that uh that that prescription drug use and 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 pharmaceutical companies uh played in this so if people want a lot of detail about it I would, I would refer them there because it's it's a really great read but I think it boils down to uh a, a couple big pieces um so you have uh, things from, the way that, that we were all taught about opioids, uh, being pain is vastly undertreated, which to some degree, uh, you know, pain at, at the time likely was under treated, uh, but, but pain is vastly under treated and Opioids are the most effective pain medications and they're the safest pain medications, right? So, so you hear, yeah, patients aren't going to get, aren't going to get addicted to these, uh, based on essentially a letter to the editor written in, uh, in 1980, I think, in New England Journal. Um, so, you know, they, they take that data and, and 15 years later, 20 years later, are saying, here's, here's great evidence, uh, that, that less than 1% of people will get addicted. So these drugs are incredibly safe. Uh, and, at the same time, these are the most effective medications for pain control, and we and we still are are taught that these are the most effective medications for pain control. In in light of uh, more and more evidence coming out now that for whether it's for acute pain, um, where Tylenol and ibuprofen uh, have been shown to be more efficacious uh, than than decent doses of oxycodone, uh, or for for chronic pain where non-opioid therapy has has been shown to be superior um from from a safety standpoint with with no real change in efficacy uh and uh to to opioids. But but you, you take those couple of pieces uh and and say here's here's an easy thing for, for a clinician to do um and and take a really complex problem like pain that has physiologic manifestations, psychologic manifestations, all of these other pieces, and boil it down to how do I take care of this in a in a fifteen minute clinic visit. Here's a, here's a magic pill that, that fixes it. You build in, uh, you know, things like direct to consumer advertising that, uh, essentially no other, no other country in the world does in New Zealand, but their healthcare system's different. And you end up with, I think we've mentioned it before, a change in the culture, um, that, that pain is something that's optional, uh, whether it's after trauma, after surgery, um, with, you know, an acute illness, that pain's something that's optional, uh, and, and, and here's a great way that we have to uh to to treat it when essentially
2: neither of those were true.
0: Well, it just seems like we've we've created such a mess for ourselves and uh obviously the road out is going to be a lot harder than the road in as is often the case I probably in an individual patient's experience as well. Um we don't have a ton of time and I feel like we could probably do, you know, hours and hours and hours on these topics and and, and maybe we should at some point but um in the time that we do have left, let's maybe, if we could, focus on sort of concrete strategies. How should we be prescribing both in the acute phase and in the recovery phase? What can we do? Um, you know, this afternoon, if I get a new patient that rolls through the door, what can I do today that's going to make a difference? Um, and, and maybe start with the idea of, you know, sometimes we're taught that the patients uh, that come in with already with opioid addiction problems has two problems. They have the injury and the addiction, and, and you can't really treat both at the same time. Is that a true concept or how philosophically should we think about this? Maybe we start with Doug and then Andrew after that.
3: Yeah, I think so. Yes, I mean, as far as concrete things that um, the, that you can do now, in in relation to the patient that already has an underlying substance use disorder, uh, there's there's kind of a couple roads. You know, one of the one of the biggest is going to be working with with uh, specialists in addiction medicine uh, and maybe that's maybe that's psychiatry uh at at your institution maybe it's maybe it's folks from internal medicine or or maybe there's even folks on 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 a trauma service line that are that are certified uh to to write for buprenorphine um, working with them um to 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 help bring in uh their expertise uh and and learning a little bit more about about uh, opioid use disorders on your own uh, i i think it's possible to to treat the two um certainly in in a patient that's withdrawing from um from opioids has acute needs uh or has a, has acute pain uh, you're not going to be able to manage it very well um without opioids but but before that patient leaves the hospital um, having at least the start of a conversation um doing some sort of screening. Um, for for risk, whether that's screening for the risk of developing a substance use disorder, whether that's screening for if they already have a substance use disorder, uh, and and there's there's published validated criteria for both of those. So I think that's that's one piece um, from that area. But the other things are not uh, you know not underestimating the the complementary power of non pharmacologic therapies. Um, so it's even things like mindfulness. Changing people's expectations uh, and and helping them deal with the pain that goes along with an injury, um, rather than trying to to necessarily just medicate it away. So I think that's a that's another big piece. Learning a little more about uh, you know about non-opioid pain treatments, even things like Tylenol and ibuprofen or, or Tylenol and NSAIDs. You know, I keep saying ibuprofen, but NSAIDs uh, in in general are in all likelihood safer um or, or don't have the have the risks that we thought they had. So I think that's a that's another piece. But but if you do have those patients um that are high risk or that you know that that happen to be on high risk regimens and they're leaving, naloxone is you can you can write for naloxone uh as well. So you have a patient that's leaving on high dose opioids, has opioids and benzodiazepine, that has that substance use disorder. naloxone's covered by almost every insurance. It's like less than ten dollars. Uh, and and there are a number of places that, uh, or a number of insurance companies that it's either free uh, or or it's a, a dollar or two. So writing for that naloxone prescription um, can can potentially be life saving, and you know, up to one percent of the one percent of the people that you see.
0: Andrew, what are you doing differently? I mean, you know, we're still using fentanyl drips in the ICU, and we're avoiding NPs because our orthopods you know, don't like them and stuff like that. Has that changed for you in your practice?
2: The main thing I'm doing is saying no. Um, Credit to Barbara Bush here. Uh, I'm Mm -hmm. saying no. And uh, I'm saying no. The law helps me now. I can say no. You know, they're, they're really tight on it now. The law is really strict on it. That does help me. I say no. I use very few tabs when there's not significant pain. When there is significant pain. I, I do try to still limit it, and I use a fair number of adjuncts. We use adjuncts in the ICU, on the ward, and at discharge if possible. So those are the main things I'm doing, Just just sort of reframing this old perception that the way to treat pain was to give a whole bunch of opioids. That's the main thing that I've done that's different. I'd be interested in... Going through a list of of uh, of adjuvants or alternatives here, and just getting Doug to give us a like a one or two or three word answer on on whether he thinks they're good. Could we do that? Sure. Yeah. I have some in my mind, and uh, maybe we'll just go through these. And Doug, you can give us thumbs up, thumbs down, or definitely, maybe, probably, I don't know, something like that. Is sure. That okay, Doug. Okay. Absolutely. Uh, Okay, Tylenol, does it work? Yes, yes. Uh, And and
3: the biggest thing here is adequately dosed uh, Tylenol, right? So in most people, that's going to be a gram every six hours. Elderly, maybe a little less. Liver dysfunction, a little bit less. Uh, But adequately dosed, scheduled Tylenol works.
2: IV Tylenol, is it better? (laughs)
3: Uh, Most people will agree that IV acetaminophen is is. No better than again adequately dosed uh oral or potentially rectal. Um the you get a little bit quicker onset from the IV. I personally think there's probably some degree of placebo effect in here's your one hundred cc's of IV pain medicine um that people say it works better, uh, but there is no evidence that uh one gram of IV acetaminophen is any better than a gram of PITO.
2: Non steroidal. I think so. Uh,
3: and, and what we're learning now is the risk associated with non-steroidals is probably lower than we thought as long as you're not using massive doses. So 400 milligrams of ibuprofen is probably where I would draw the line and say this is an effective dose that, that maximizes the efficacy uh, while minimizing the risk. Uh, regarding the, the fractures, there was a really good article put out uh, in, in 2016, I can't remember the journal. Um, looking at the quality of evidence uh, versus what the study found regarding NSAIDs and the risk of nonunion, malunion, osteo. Uh, and essentially what they found was the poorer quality study, uh, the more likely it was to find that NSAIDs uh, worsened outcomes. So the better quality studies found found uh, no difference. Sorry, that's longer than a thumbs up, thumbs down, but I would say thumbs up for NSAIDs as well.
2: Potentially even in fractures. I think so it's enough to have a conversation with our orthopedist at least. Yeah.
3: Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's enough to to get their get their expertise and their buy-in. Yes. Okay. Gabapentin. It's tricky. Um, so that a maybe for neuropathic pain, yes. Uh I I think gabapentin and for some and, and to some degree uh things like Cymbalta uh, are helpful. When you run into problems with gabapentin, it's it's sedating, if you it has probably has saturable uh, absorption uh but that changes if you give it with an opioid. Um so opioids slow down your GI tract, they increase transit time. Um so by slowing down your GI tract, you probably absorb a little more of the gabapentin, uh and and uh you run the risk of of uh, sedating a patient. So in general, I don't think it's that helpful outside of specific cases.
2: Flexeril. Uh
3: Flexeril specifically, I don't I don't think so. I uh, I think it's it's probably a little too sedating. Um, probably something like, uh, or robaxin is a little bit more helpful. Again, that's just for, for, uh, for spastic pain. One interesting thing about FlexRill, though, there was a, there was a study that was put out about, I don't know, 10, 20 years ago. Uh, 10 milligram doses are no better than five. They're just more sedating. Uh, so if you are using FlexRill, we typically cap at five milligrams three times a day.
2: Very interesting.
1: Wait, there's one what a- more. What about lidoderm patches?
2: Oh um <laughs> maybe
3: so uh, so I'm not going to get into the rib fracture piece um but uh yeah that's that's probably where uh they they may fit in the the evidence with any of the topical stuff is is not good um meaning it's not high quality evidence it's it's kind of mixed whether or not it helps for incisional site pain maybe um rib fractures probably not uh so the the cost doesn't seem to outweigh the benefit that you get um so i i'd probably give those a thumbs down
0: how about
2: benzos i like like
0: lidocaine i like lidocaine patches because i believe in the i think they work if you believe in them and so i will talk them up to the patients and i will also sometimes try to like make them warmer or colder than the room temperature so there's extra placebo juice working I that's,
3: that's an interesting one to bring up is just placebo um, and there's a whole lot of there's a whole lot of discussion about just placebo uh, and you know if you if you come in and say here's your pain medicine um, regardless of what it is uh, you know that, that may work better than oh here's some Tylenol whatever so the placebo I think is that's probably no, I'm not advocating for just you know giving people sugar pills but I think there's there's certainly some reality to the placebo effect.
2: So, how about some other alternatives, Doug?
3: Massage. Yeah, I, I think all the non-pharmacologic stuff. Now, where, where you run into with the non-pharm is how much benefit do you get? Uh, probably not an incredible amount, but the the risk-benefit ratio there's there's very little risk outside of you know specific scenarios um, of you know if they have mobility issues or something related to a fracture. Um, so, yeah, massage. I, I think so, and and. I'll be honest. Pretty much any of the non-pharmacologic stuff you, you mentioned, I'm, I'm probably going to say thumbs up, just because there's almost no risk associated with most of them.
2: So massage, aromatherapy, music therapy, acupuncture. Lo- you, acupuncture. you loop all those together. You give them a thumbs up. Very low risk profile.
3: Absolutely. And there's actually um, there's uh, there's military data about acupuncture um, being being uh, being helpful. So yeah um I'd lump all those in as as risk benefit strongly favors uh favors the benefit there now that about, with the risk being zero you know you may not get a ton of benefit but it's it's certainly not going to hurt how
0: about what about associated associated with ketamine ketamine is interesting- yeah i think i think
3: ketamine my experience with ketamine i don't have i don't personally have a lot of experience using uh ketamine continuous infusions. Um, now I do think ketamine for uh procedural um, kind of stuff uh whether that's dressing changes or 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 whatever um, can be really helpful. So yeah, I, I think subdissociative ketamine um, you know single doses limited to uh you know limited to procedural uh issues I and mean, you can you know you can repeat them but uh that's where that's where I've seen the the biggest benefit. Not to say that there's not a benefit with continuous infusion, uh I just haven't uh I just haven't used that much myself.
2: Doug, how about benzos with the idea that they enhance muscle relaxation or something like that?
3: Probably a thumbs down. Um, getting back to the risk benefit, they—I they, mean—they're going to help with muscle relaxation if you've tried others that have failed, um, maybe. But I know a lot of a lot of places are moving towards, uh, especially at, at discharge. Um, it's one or the other. You get, you get opioids or you get benzos because that, if you use them together, that risk of overdose is so high. Um, that, that it, it, it is one of the strongest predictors of, of an overdose is taking, uh, opioids with other concomitants that it is, especially benzos. So they so, probably help with the spasm, but the risk is, in my mind, too high for most people.
2: You've told me before that benzos with opioids is one indication for, for home Narcan.
3: Yes. Yeah, there's there's three indications. so the CDC guidelines from last year, there are there are essentially three uh indications that that they uh suggested that you should think about writing they specifically spelled out you should think about um sending a patient home with Narcan. One is opioids and benzos, one is opioids and uh and a substance use disorder, um, and the third is if you're giving somebody more than fifty morphine equivalents. So that's fifty milligrams of hydrocodone a day, thirty milligrams of oxycodone a day. Um, that's where they would suggest sending them out with a naloxone script. That's not very much. What about
2: clonidine? No.
3: No. I, I personally am a believer in clonidine. Um, there's the the evidence for oral clonidine. Uh, I haven't seen much. Um, you know, we have kind of our data um, that uh, – that we've looked back retrospectively at our outcomes with clonidine, and it, it seems to be helpful, but the the N is really small, uh, and the way we used clonidine kind of made it tough to evaluate. I think there's some, some pretty good data um, regarding uh, dexmedetomidine or presidex, which is uh, similar, a little more centrally acting than than clonidine. Um, so there's there's some decent data for that that, that I've been comfortable extrapolating over to clonidine. Uh, I think it is somewhat helpful. A couple things that, to, to know about quantity. Obviously you gotta worry about the hemodynamic stuff. Um, we can, we push the, we're relatively comfortable, it was based on a paper out of, I think, Maine, pushing the doses up to a couple milligrams a day, so as high as .4, or .5 every six hours. Uh, tapering up to that obviously, not starting there. Um, but if you have somebody on it at either high doses or for longer than a week, you gotta taper them off. Otherwise you run the risk of, of, uh, them being really hyperdynamic but to me i it's probably in the middle you know kind of the thumb sideways uh just cuz that data is not there but but i've i've had good experience
2: using it what's coming over the horizon Doug? what's new what's 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 out there what's in development there's there's a number of
3: uh intravenous NSAIDs uh is is one big thing so um and new way new combinations of of existing analgesics uh, there was actually a, an initiative through, uh, I think it was through NIH. Uh, don't don't quote me for sure, but I think it was the NIH Heal Initiative. But part of what they wanted to do was essentially develop non-addictive painkillers. The 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 trouble is is uh we've been searching for a non-addictive opioid for hundred years or more uh, and haven't and haven't found one yet. Um, so there's a lot of you know, there's there's potentially a lot of money for a company if they can if they can come up with some incredibly effective, non-addictive analgesic, um, but I don't know. I, I don't I don't know that that necessarily exists. So okay. there's is, new things coming out, but go ahead.
1: I was just going to say, you know, we talked about highly effective, non-addictive for the states where it was legal. I think there's quite an argument that using marijuana can be a, a pretty effective analgesic.
3: Yeah, there's, there's, there is some evidence um, with, with marijuana. It's, it's kind of tricky, um, because you look at some of the data and, and some of the data say, you know, for this state the legalized marijuana they saw a reduction in overdose deaths, um but the quality of all of that is is tricky um and and in some sometimes questionable, not always, but in some cases questionable. Uh the the, the tough part about marijuana in my mind is kind of how we look at drugs overall. Um, and you know, is it safe? Does it work? Has it been proven in in uh, in robust studies um, for for things to essentially be marketed um, and, and approved by the FDA? And I haven't seen that stuff with marijuana. Now it's really hard to study because it's Schedule One. <laughs> so there's that part of it that makes those studies really hard to to come up with in the first place. Um, but but yeah, I mean, there there are the anecdotal cases of, you know, whether it's medical marijuana or whether it's synthetic cannabinoids, and, you know, Marinol and that kind of thing, um, potentially being helpful, especially in people that that used marijuana, you know, prior to their injury, maybe that's helpful as well. Um, but that that data's not there now. Uh, if it's if it's an option, you know, in your state. I, I think it's okay. I, again, I probably wouldn't. It's it's sedating, so you know I'd have concerns about the concomitant sedatives if you're sending someone out on opioids and saying, hey, you know you can you can smoke this or eat this or whatever with it. I'd have those concerns. But but uh, yeah, I think that one's still that one's I don't know, still a little ways off from from mainstream now.
0: Yeah, that sound you're hearing that was a can of worms being opened, I think. <laughs> I think so. I think so. Ta-da! <laughs> well, um, unfortunately, we're at the end of our time here. I, I honestly, I could, I could have this conversation for another couple hours and still think of uh, really good questions. And maybe, maybe we'll do a part uh, two here in the next little while to get into maybe some of the more specifics and things. Because I would love to hear more about you know sort of the recovery phase and responsible prescribing and pain contracts and things like that and how they all interplay with trauma so maybe if you buy, if you both are willing all three of you're willing maybe maybe we'll set a date for a, a future one and and do uh you know do episode 2 of opioid prescribing that'd be uh, fun that'd be that'd be great. happy to well, thanks so much to all three of you uh, for joining uh, me on this on this podcast. I, it it's been very informative and and it, you know, sometimes it's hard I think to confront like you said Andrew uh, your own culpability in some of the some of the, you know, I some of the things that have happened, but I if we're if we're honest, I think if we're introspective, I think we all have a tiny sliver of uh blame to share for some of the problems that we're facing as a country right now. obviously not just physicians, not just patients, not just drug companies, but it's interesting how all three conspired together, willingly or unwillingly, to to create the problem that we're in. But we can Um, fix it. We can all also fix it. And that's what I kind of want to end on. Uh, Doug, what are some resources if people want to go find out more? Are there uh, good uh, aggregator websites or or, or things that you'd recommend? And We'll put a link to these uh, on the webpage too.
3: Sure. So, so, yeah, I mean, there's – there 's the c d c guidelines um, for prescribing opioids for for chronic pain that's one that 's one area, and I think the the general principles from those can be applied to um, to acute pain so that 's one area the c d c website has a wealth of resources uh, about opioid prescribing and they have patient education materials and things like that on there as well so that's that's the the biggest thing um, uh SAMHSA has a lot of information about treatment of substance use disorders. I know we didn't get into that too much, um, but they have that uh on, on their site uh website. TIP sixty three is essentially a an incredibly long document, but it has a lot of resources around treatment of substance use disorders, uh as well as the American Society for Addiction Medicine. I mean you can do uh you know the eight hour buprenorphine waiver training. Uh, I've I've done it myself. It's it's uh, not incredibly cumbersome um, to do, and essentially after that, it's a it's a little bit of paperwork to be able to uh, to to write for buprenorphine and understand a lot of the the implications of, of opioid use. So those are probably the three biggest ones I think would be helpful.
0: Great. Well, again, thank you both, and thank you, Carrie, for joining us as well. This has been uh, very eye-opening and informative. Thank you.
3: Nice Absolutely. You Thanks guys. for having me.
0: And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast brought to you by the East Online Education Section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the east.